Welcome to Marketing Thought Leadership, the podcast that offers insightful discussions on thought-provoking marketing topics. Here's the host of our show, marketing consultant, speaker, author, and educator, and the president of Leverage 2 Market Associates, Linda Popke. Hi, this is Linda Popke, and welcome to our latest episode of Marketing Thought Leadership. I'm very pleased to be here today with Alan Weiss, who is my mentor, and he's also one of the rare people who can say he's a consultant, a speaker, and an author, and really mean it. Um, His firm, Summit Consulting, has attracted all kinds of clients, such as Merck, HP, GE, Mercedes-Benz, the New York Times, Toyota, and over 500 other leading organizations. He has also, over the last 10 or 15 years, really refocused his business uh, to work with individual consultants and boutique um, consulting firms, such as myself. He served on the boards of directors of a number of different um, uh, activities and and places, such as the Trinity Repertory Company, a Tony Award-winning New England Regional Theater, Festival Ballet, and he's chaired the Newport International Film Festival. He's written over 60 books on consulting, and as I understand, he also lost in the first round of Jeopardy to a singing dancer from Iowa. So welcome, Alan. Thank you, Linda. Actually, he was a dancing waiter. As a dancing waiter, okay. <laughs> All right. Um, Alan, you have written more books on consulting than any other person in history. But the book that we're about to talk about now, which is your new book called Million Dollar Maverick, isn't really about consulting. So why did you change the focus this time? Well, for the past couple of years, I've been moving beyond consulting, embracing consulting, but moving more toward entrepreneurs uh, and people who start their own businesses, run their own businesses, have boutique firms, are thinking of doing that. Uh, because there are there are issues that affect all of these people, and it's a lot more fun to deal with them. So Maverick is about uh, how you can overcome issues of self-esteem and self-doubt and how you can use things that I've learned in everyday practice uh, immediately to improve your life and improve your business. So tell me, Alan, first of all, I guess before we go too much further, how are you defining Maverick? Because Maverick is one of those words that we hear a lot. But in your definition, what is a Maverick? Maverick comes from a Texas engineer who owned a cattle ranch, and his last name was Maverick, and he refused to brand his cattle. So his cattle, since they weren't branded, became known as Mavericks, in other words, belonging to Maverick. That's where it originated. But today, colloquially, a Maverick is someone uh, who stands out from the herd, is someone who doesn't get into the mainstream, and is not afraid to be out on his own. So is this something that you realized early on in your career, that you were going to be a Maverick, that you knew this as it was happening, or it's something that now as you look back in retrospect, you say, ah, I was really different, I took a different path? I think what I realized early, Linda, is that uh, when I took a different path, things were much easier for me. You know, it's not a matter of the mainstream or the road less traveled or the beat of a different drummer. It's really about creating your own path and creating your own beat. And so when I did that, it wasn't tougher for me, it was easier for me. And so I just naturally... Uh, went in that direction, and uh, after a while I realized exactly what it was I was doing, so I codified it. You talk about, and I've heard you tell this story before, about one of the, I think, formative experiences of your childhood was um, was applying to be this uh, transfer student um, and, and taking this trip over to Europe, uh, not necessarily in the best of, of circumstances and, and realizing that there was more out there. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your, what you learned from that. Well, we were poor, you know, and we were in high school where everybody was poor. It was an inner city. Uh, and this one year, just out of complete 
you know, good fortune. They had this exchange student process. And so uh, I won the competition. And the competition, there were four of us with a committee of 17 teachers, and they asked this question, uh, and this was the height of the Cold War. If you went to Europe representing us and the United States, uh, how would you defend the United States? And the other three people, it turns out later I learned, uh, all tried to defend the United States. I realized that just uh, adding to that was not going to get me anywhere, and I said instead I wouldn't defend the United States. And after there was a certain silence, I said I would explain it. We don't need a defense. We need an explanation. And I won 17, 16 to 1. I won that particular vote. So that told me immediately that being a contrarian was extraordinarily helpful. And then when I went to Europe, uh, we sailed on the original Queen Mary. And when I came back, it was my very first airplane ride ever. We went through uh, nine countries. Uh, and I learned that, uh, one, uh, we really had it really good. I mean, <laughs> uh, we tend to be complacent even today, but I learned how well we had it in the U.S., the second is I learned that, um, that diversity, that learning about other languages and other cultures and histories and so forth was immensely rewarding uh, and helped to build your character as a person. And the third thing was I learned that um, even if you couldn't speak the language, if you used your ingenuity uh, and your intuition, uh, you, could get, you could be understood. You could get by. So for me, it was uh, moving from a black and white world to a technicolor world. And, and you've talked about the importance of a liberal arts education, and is that something you think we're missing in today's world? Well, we're missing it just like we're missing the Stegosaurus. It's extinct. And so if you, if you can miss something extinct, yeah, we're missing it. Uh, because when I went to Rutgers, uh, I majored in political science, but I, I took a liberal arts education. That's what you got. And so you had to take three years of language and three years of science. You had to take other disciplines, or you wouldn't graduate. Uh, and that was tremendously powerful. Uh, today, you have people who are immersed in a single track where they take six years to get out of school uh, or they don't finish at all uh, or they have, they have courses uh, such as um, uh, how to, how to uh, use politically correct language under all conditions. You, know? <laughs> uh, you, have, uh, you have professors of intergender studies, for God's sake. And so, yeah, it's extinct today and it's too bad because the educational system at the primary and secondary level is clearly failing. And it's a shame to think that the pride and joy of the United States, which is its higher education system, uh, is, uh, is deteriorating. So how much of what you, you really need to know to be successful and what you need to know in your career were things you learned in school versus things you just learned by being around the environment? Well, the key thing that you learn in school, that you should learn in school, is how to learn. And ah. so the content isn't important. You know, the, the dates of the French Revolution, you could look up then. Today, you could look it up on your iPhone. I mean, right. So co content's not important. But knowing the meaning of why the, uh, let's say, the uh, American and uh, the British, the American, the French, and Russian revolutions, the four great revolutions, took place when they did, uh, that has some implications for how one thinks and how one looks at the world. And uh, college should teach you how to learn. Right now, uh, it's teaching anything but. It's teaching dumb content. One of the problems with the primary and secondary schools is we have teachers who major in education, which teaches you virtually nothing. Right, right. Yeah, it teaches you how to, how to teach in a process. Yeah, exactly. So you talk a lot about growth and about having to leave things behind in order to grow, sort of like a turtle has to shed its shell and then it's vulnerable. Uh, well, I, think you mean, you, I think you mean a lobster. A turtle doesn't do a that. A lobster. Okay, sorry, yeah. a lobster. <laughs> sure, I guess if the a turtle, turtle would really be vulnerable. If a turtle a lobster does that, suicide, Linda. 
Exactly. So is this an area where you see people getting stuck that they, they kind of want to hold on to that shell and be like the turtle rather than the lobster? Yeah. People ask me all the time, what constitutes the most successful people in your global communities? And one of the top three traits I always name is they allow themselves to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. They show people where they made a mistake. They ask people for advice. They say when they're uncertain. Uh, but people who are defensive, who never shed the shell, are confined by that exoskeleton. And so they can never outgrow that shell, that external skeleton. Uh, and so, I, you know, you meet people every day, and all your listeners here meet people every day who are defensive, who don't let you in, who claim that they're better than they are. You know, I, I, my, um, my identification of most professional trade association meetings is a bunch of people getting together to lie about how well they're doing. <laughs> That's true, yep. Yep, absolutely. So what are some of the things we need to know to continue to grow, both personally and professionally? You well, I think you need, to know time, you need to know time and place. In other words, you yeah. need to have a sense of geography and history so you know why you're here and how you got here. Uh, that's very important uh, in, in terms of, of perspective. Uh, I think you need to know uh, what, uh, what constitutes matters of taste and what constitutes matters of principle. And mm-hmm. so you don't fight fights. You don't get yourself bloody over silly things. But you do know when you have to dig your heels in because it's very important. Uh, I think you have to understand critical thinking skills. And so how you solve problems, how you make decisions, how you set priorities, how you negotiate, uh, all those are essential every day. And, and uh, finally, there's language which underlies everything. And because of the Internet, which allows you ironically to communicate at the speed of light just about, uh, language is deteriorating. And people don't understand the nuances. So it's not just a matter of poor punctuation or poor spelling. When you don't have a grasp of language, you lose a lot of tools. You lose a lot of influence. Uh, The political candidates running for office right now, as as you and I are talking, uh, generally have poor commands of language. Uh, They have limited vocabularies. uh, And it shows. And that's why none of them are terribly effective, in my opinion, uh, making an extemporaneous speech. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And and interestingly enough, the other thing that happens, because we are so connected and we are so transparent and things happen so quickly, no matter what you say is picked up. So anytime somebody says something that's silly or off the wall or stupid or doesn't communicate well, it's picked up and it's magnified and it's all over the place. Well, one of the things I mentioned in Million Dollar Maverick is the fact that, you know, we can no longer expect privacy. Uh, that right. was a nice, you know, dignified and, uh, and, and civil kind of feeling uh, back in the 50s and maybe into the 60s. But today especially, uh, no one should expect a right to privacy because it's abrogated every day. And so you have to get used to that. Yeah, absolutely. So you talk a lot about uh, self-esteem being an issue for most consultants and entrepreneurs and probably for others as well. In this book, you focus on the fact that a lot of people don't trust their own judgment. Is that related to low self-esteem? Is that a separate issue? How do you see those coming together? No, it's directly a part of it. And so when you don't feel good about yourself, you don't trust yourself. So, if, you know, we talk about making sales, and sales are a matter of trust between the person selling something and the person buying something. And the more you trust them, the more you'll accept their word, the less you'll demand guarantees, the less you'll demand references. So trust is a key variable in the ease and speed of making a sale. Well, if you don't trust yourself, the same thing holds true internally. And you don't trust yourself to make the decision if you don't feel good about yourself. And therefore, you vacillate uh, or you never make the decision at all. Uh, And because we don't trust in ourselves, we continue to ask others' opinions to get validation. And at the very best, that delays the decision considerably. But at the worst, 
uh, it creates a decision which might not be in our best interest because other people are making it in their best interest. So we're looking to others for validation, and that sort of gets people stuck, in the, and it becomes like a doom loop, right? Well, also, it, it does could become a doom loop, but it also orients them the wrong way. For example, a lot of professional speakers uh, try to get validation from the audience, and so what they want is love. They want the, right. the standing ovation. They want the smile sheet that has a 10. So instead of really helping the audience and risk somebody not liking them, uh, they, they strive for affection instead of respect, and consequently, they're not very effective. Yeah, that makes sense. I've seen that happen too many times. Um, in the book, you say we suffer most when we lead with our egos. Yet you also say that false humility doesn't help us either. We, no one wants the, the humble consultant. We want the consultant that we know is going to do a great job. So how do you balance those two concepts? Well, I never said don't have an ego. What I said is don't eat, lead with your ego. And right, so it's fine exactly. to have a large ego. It's fine to be confident. But if you put it on the bow of the ship, it's going to be battered by the waves and the wind and the storms every day. So you should keep it safe. You know, Keep it in the hold. Keep it in the cargo area. Uh, but don't let it get bruised all the time. You know, Don't expose it so it's always getting bruised. So I, nobody I know, no buyer I know has ever screamed and said, get me a humble consultant, get me a humble speaker, get me a humble coach. They don't want that. They, you know, I mean, would you say I want a humble heart surgeon? I don't think so. No, absolutely you know, I want a guy you know, or a woman who thinks you know, they're God if they're going to operate inside of me. So uh, humility isn't the point, but uh, you can't let your ego lead. In other words, you shouldn't do things that turn out to be dysfunctional for you just so that your ego feels good, and that's the difference. That makes sense. That makes sense. You also said you don't need to be the absolute strongest, just strong, or the absolute swiftest, but just swift. I'm reminded of the joke about the two men in the woods and they encounter a bear, and the first man starts to run, and the second one says, you can't possibly expect to outrun the bear. And the second one says, I don't need to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun you. So is that sort of what you mean by we need to be swift enough to kind of outrun everyone else without being the best and the swiftest out there? Well, you know, I, I've always talked about TIAABB, which is there is always a bigger boat. Right. So somebody's always going to have a bigger boat. Stop trying to have the biggest. You know, somebody might run faster than you. Don't worry about it. Uh, Damon Runyon, the famous New York uh, sports reporter, said uh, the battle isn't always to the strong and the race isn't always to the swift, but that's the way to bet. And so, you know, nine times out of ten, the hare is going to beat the turtle. So what we have to do is be fast enough for our purposes and strong enough for our purposes, but not necessarily the strongest or fastest in the world. If I am fast in getting business as a consultant, I don't have to be faster than an Olympic sprinter. Those are two different things. Got it. Got it. I want to talk about also about standing out from the crowd. You know I've written the book Marketing Above the Noise, which is about how you stand out from the crowd. I would say you've used, I'm, I'm going to use a word here, your maverickism, I don't know if that's a word, um, to help you stand out from the crowd and help you get above the noise. How do you recommend for those of us who are maybe saying, gee, I'm not sure I'm a maverick, how do you, how do you start to, to stand out and use that, that idea of being a maverick to, to, to be different? That's a good question. There are, there are three or four things. The first is that uh, if you're going to stand out in a crowd, you have to be comfortable standing there. And so you have to be of a mindset that says, I don't need to be in the middle of the herd. I don't need to be in the middle of the school of fish. I don't mind standing out here and having people seeing me and saying, look, uh, she's out there by herself. The second thing is that while you're out there, uh, you better look good. So after comfort, there's the question of being able to produce. You have to have good ideas. You have to have good approaches. Simply standing out is insufficient. But if you stand out and have good ideas and get things done, uh, then you're talking. I think the third thing is that uh, you have to be able to – uh, accept failure. You know, if you're not failing, you're not trying. 
Right. Uh, and so a lot of people who stand out in the crowd become easy targets. Uh, a lot of people who stand out in the crowd, uh, others immediately mock. Uh, and you have to be willing to put up not only with the, um, with the criticism, you know, on, internet we call, on the Internet we call them trolls, right. but you also have to be able to understand that some of your ideas might not work. So you don't want to scurry back into the herd and hide. You just want to say, that one didn't work, here's another one. And so when you and you've had ideas that didn't fly that maybe you thought were going to be really successful. How do you know when you say, "Gee, it's me or it's them," or, or what's your thought when something doesn't work? I stop worrying about it and I come up with something new. You know, there's a book out by I think Adam Grant called The Originals. Right. Uh, and uh, it's an excellent book because what he says in there is that um, the people who have had great ideas have had a lot of ideas, and sometimes most of them haven't worked. But the only way to have really great ideas is to have good ideas. And so if you look at somebody like Edison, who had, I don't know, what, 15,000 patents or something, right. you know, maybe, maybe a dozen of them were commercially viable. Uh, you look at the guy who invented the, the Segway. Uh, he has brilliant stuff for heart stints and, and injection in medicine, but the Segway was a disaster. Right. And so you have to have a lot of good ideas, and that will get you a great idea. Okay. So we just need to keep putting more ideas out there. And that comes back to, excuse me, that comes back to not fearing failure. Ah, because people give up too soon. Well, they have one failure and they go back and hide in the herd. Right, right, exactly. Exactly. You talk also about having a personal GPS system to keep yourself on track. What what would you suggest goes into this kind of guidance system, uh, you know, for entrepreneurs or, or consultants? Well, what goes into any guidance system? First of all, you have to know what your destination is. Yep. The second thing, you have to know where you are at the moment. And the third thing is you have to examine the various routes and decide do you want something that's blazingly fast or something that takes a little more time or something that avoids a traffic jam. I mean, it's the same principle. So if you don't know where you're going, uh, GPS won't do you any good. It'll just right. be there. If you don't know where you are, it's not going to do any good because it can't tell you how to get to where you're going if you don't know where you are. So you need the same kinds of uh, dynamics, the same kind of criteria that you would in your car. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, and you talk about having no guilt, no fear, and no peer. So, first, let's let's talk about guilt because I I think we're we see a lot of guilt around, and we're carrying this baggage that we've had for decades, maybe. So, how does guilt really derail otherwise successful people? Well, guilt, um, it, you know, there's a strange verb. I think guilted. I guilted her into it. You know, mm. I guilted him into giving uh, by saying everyone else was giving more than he was at the charity event. So I guilted him into it. It's a hor- horrible word. It's a neologism, and, it, and it's just and it's, it's a horrible concept. Uh, guilt masks talent. If you feel guilty, your real talent never shines through. It's like depression, uh, and guilt comes about through a variety of ways. You know, one is we we feel inadequate, so our self-esteem is low, and we feel guilty even trying things. Another is that we're uh, it, the guilt trip is laid upon us by others, uh, often by our families. Uh, the third is the guilt is is laid down by society. You know, I mean, uh, right now everybody's talking – well, I shouldn't say that. Right now one of the things people talk about uh, is white privilege uh, right. or, or the war on women or the war on terror. Uh, and these are meant to make different kinds of people feel guilty, uh, which isn't necessarily productive. Got it. So we have to avoid – kind of we have, we have to throw the guilt off the train, so to speak, and say let's move forward without – feeling guilt without accepting and some of the guilt is imposed by other people and some of it's imposed by ourselves isn't it yes so you have to find the cause 
yep. uh, because you can't remove guilt without finding the cause of guilt. So if it's, your, if it's something your mother told you 30 years ago, you have to say that was 30 years ago. My mother was wrong then. She's wrong now. If you need therapy to get over that, then get it because otherwise it's going to continue to diminish your ability to perform. If it's something you're telling yourself, then you have to change your self-talk. And sometimes you can do this through coaching, but sometimes you know, I could recognize when people need a therapeutic intervention to get that done. And, and I think that's important as well um, to understand that. We talked a little bit, the no fear piece. You said don't fear criticism. Is there anything, I mean, obviously, you know, if there's a train coming down the track, you want to be afraid and get out of the way. But outside of, of immediate physical danger, is there a time when fear is justified? Yeah. I mean, look, people talk about fight or flight all the time, psychology, psychology 101. But there's also fright. You know, there's fight, flight, fright. Now, you, it's legitimate to be fearful if you see a tornado approaching. It's legitimate to be fearful uh, if you're told that um, uh, uh, there's somebody with a gun in the next room. Uh, it's legitimate to be fearful if you're told that a loved one uh, has a, a certain disease. Uh, and, and you can't deny that, and you have to deal with that fright, uh, that fear, in order to be successful in trying to overcome it. However, we tend to fear things that are ridiculous. And I tell people all the time, you know, that my father was a paratrooper in World War II, uh, jumping into enemy guns in New Guinea. But when you go into a buyer's office, nobody's shooting at you. And so you need some perspective, which goes back to my feelings about a liberal arts education. Uh, if you go to get up to make a speech, if you go into a buyer's office, if you suggest a new idea to your client, the worst that can happen is you don't do well or they say no or you don't get more business. But none of that, not, not any of that, is fatal. And most of it isn't even terribly harmful. Yet we fear the least kind of repercussion. We fear the least kind of criticism. And that's the kind of fear that's absolutely debilitating. And it seems to be magnified. We take everything and make it bigger, bigger, bigger. Yeah, absolutely. So can you explain the no, no peer philosophy? Because I've also heard you say that we should look to people who are thought leaders and make them our peers. But then you say you have no guilt, no fear, no peer. So explain well, how, how that works. That's my mantra. When I walk into a room, uh, I own it. I don't care if there are two people in it or 200 people in it. I own it unless somebody proves different. Uh, and that's the kind of confidence I walk into a room with. You know, I feel that confidence is the belief that you can, honest to God, help other people all the time. I think arrogance is the belief that you can't be helped yourself. Uh, I'm not arrogant, but I'm terribly, highly, totally confident. Now, in terms of peers, you know, uh, I, uh, I look at somebody like uh, Peter Drucker, who I would aspire to be a peer of his, uh, uh, there are people like that I learn from all the time, people who are my idols, people who are my icons. Uh, but um, uh, I don't see – and I have peers in the speaking business as I do professional speaking. Uh, I have peers in the coaching business. You know, Marshall Goldsmith is a peer. Mm -hmm. I, have peer in the, I have peers in the, in the uh, writing business, you know, Dan Pink or Seth Godin and so forth. Right. So I see those people as peers. But if I walk into a room with a client, with prospects, in a meeting, socially – my feeling is I own it, and, uh, and that's the attitude I have. And have you always had that attitude? No, I've had that attitude, you know, after I got fired, but I was ah. a scared little kid at one point. Okay, so sometimes it's those, those experiences that, that really mold us that, that say, hey, I'm not going to do that anymore, and no one is well, shooting uh, at you. A lot of people listening to this uh, have been fired, and they know darn well that when you get fired, one of two things happens, and only one of two things. You get distraught or you get angry, and I got right. really angry. And, but what's also key, I think, it's not just that you got angry, but you used that productively. Well, that's yeah. right. You, you, you channel the energy that anger can produce into something productive. You don't just whine about it. 
Yeah, there's, there's a lot of that going on, a lot of whining and, and not necessarily being productive. Um, let me talk a little bit about innovation. You say we've got to stop trying to solve problems to innovate. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, we're focused overwhelmingly as a, as a culture and in our organizations to fix things. And so something's not operating right, a person's not performing well, process goes wrong, we want to restore it to its previous performance. Now, that's good, that's important, but we're not spending enough time looking at things that are already performing well and raising the bar. And if you look at the great companies in history, you know, if you look at, uh, at FedEx or if you look at Apple, uh, the, great the great companies are constantly looking to improve uh, and not just fix things. Ah, Okay. So, and, and in terms of for ourselves, and, and obviously I'm a marketer and I work with marketers, um, what's your advice about how do we innovate? How do we take the concepts that you've got here and apply them to the work we do? And I think marketers need to be mavericks, but should we also make our, our customers into mavericks as well? Well, one thing I've noticed about entrepreneurs is they tend to be opportunistic. In other words, something happens, yep. and they recognize opportunity, and they jump on it. What I'm suggesting in Million Dollar Maverick is that you also become uh, innovative, which means you don't wait for a trigger. You don't wait for something you see as an opportunity. You create the opportunity. And so the answer to your question is, uh, one, the way you do that is you allow yourself the freedom and time to think that way and do it, and you don't get in the rut of problem solving. And the second is, of course, help your clients to be more innovative because the more innovative they are, the more they'll lead in their markets, and the more they lead in their markets, the better the reflection on you. That sounds great. Can I ask you for one, and I love talking to you, but I, I know we need to, to cut this off. What's one final piece of advice you'd like to give us about how we can put maverickism, which is a word I just coined, to work for ourselves? My, my advice is that um, you get comfortable uh, being on your own. You get comfortable uh, being an expert. You get comfortable declaring things. And so maybe the essence for maverickism is this. Uh, if, if you and I are both in Venice and I say, what a beautiful city, and you say, indeed it is, uh, I've just affirmed something. But if I'm here with you and you've never been to Venice and I say, you know, Venice is a beautiful city, that's declaring something. And where we all want to be as mavericks is we declare things to be true and other people agree with us. That's really the essence of expertise. Ah, so we're not asking for validation. We're declaring because we are the expert. And we're believed immediately because we're expert. Ah, okay. That sounds great. So, Alan, I know the book is coming out soon, towards the end of May. Where can we get the book? You can get the book at my special site, The milliondollarmaverick.com, and you need to put the in there because otherwise you go to a cowboy site. I always <laughs> wanted to be a cowboy, but uh, so the milliondollarmaverick.com, uh, and I have a range of offers there uh, from uh, uh, being admitted into my and alansforums.com on the internet to spending a day with me on your business, all kinds of offers. Or uh, you can go to amazon.com, and there you can get the absolutely best price in all candor if you just want the book alone. And you, they're also offering a tandem where you can buy that book and the fifth edition of Million Dollar Consulting, which comes out in June after 25 years. It's on the shelves continually. Uh, you can buy both books for a really good price. So either way would do it. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I appreciate your being here. Thanks for asking me. Okay. This is Linda Poppy. We've been talking with Alan Weiss, the author of the upcoming Million Dollar Maverick. Thank you for joining us. Until the next episode, thank you for listening to Marketing Thought Leadership. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Marketing Thought Leadership, brought to you by Leverage 2 Market Associates. 
if you'd like to find out how powerful marketing results can transform your organization, contact us at www.leverage2market.com.